Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Biden administration is admitting that though they've taken hits at the Houthi rebels, they haven't actually hit the Houthi rebels. Oh, they've hit a stronghold here. Oh, they've hit a place there. But in terms of actually doing damage and stopping these Iran-based terrorists or these Iran-supported terrorists, it hasn't worked out. They haven't done enough. So they're going to engage more attacks. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Be a part of what we're doing over there. I'd greatly appreciate it. Become a supporter. The problem for Joe Biden is that he can't look his own party in the eye, never mind Republicans in the eye, regarding how to handle this. Republicans will wonder why this didn't start a couple months ago when the Houthi rebels thought that they were in charge of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Because that's what the Biden administration allowed to happen. One should ask why. How did this come to be? The Houthi rebels, H-O-U-T-H-I. That's how, you, that's how you spell it. You pronounce it Houthi. They have been involved in a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia for years. Funded by Iran. This uh, can be seen as a Sunni-Shia fight. We're talking about different views on Islam. Uh, this can be viewed in a multiplicity of ways. But Iran has been backing the Houthi rebels, and there has been nonstop civil war in Yemen. These same Houthi rebels are not some cave dwellers. And I think that there is still this mentality that exists that somehow our enemy in the Middle East, radical Islamists, jihadists, uh, are Osama bin Laden living in caves or living in squalor, or whatever the case may be. The people who fund these things, well, they don't live in those places. They live like kings. They're billionaires. But the training of their people is legit. When you see the videos of the Houthi rebels and how they're able to take cargo ships, they helicopter in, they're well-armed, they are prepared, they're going in tactically. The days of somehow them being this ragtag group of misfits, that's over. Now, that is not to say they can't be defeated by a United States military totally willing and committed to going in and solving the problem. Of course they can. They stand no chance against the United States military that is committed and has the willpower to get the job done. That, of course, being foreshadowing to whether or not today's U.S. military, or I should say military leadership, has that willpower. The Secretary of Defense can be absent without leave in surgery, not inform the President of the United States, his boss, and still keep his job. That gives you an idea of some of the problems that we're having. The Houthi rebels, after watching Hamas's attack on October 7th of Israel, the murder of 1,200, the raping of women, the burning alive of children, people forget. I don't plan on forgetting at all. Uh, they have engaged in missile attacks, missile attacks against American interests, missile attacks against Israeli interests. You've had missiles from the Houthi rebels shot down by the U.S., by Israel uh, and its Iron Dome, and by Saudi Arabia. Then the Houthi rebels decided that what they could do is take control of what we could describe as the navigable seas. Hey, you're sending a tanker or a cargo ship through the, uh, through the Red Sea. 
and then you're going to come across uh, underneath Yemen and the Gulf of Aden and then get into the Indian Ocean. Now nah, we're going to take that ship. Oh, we're going to uh, target you. We're going to hit you with a missile. We're going to attack. They have hit U.S. Uh, ships. They have hit Greek ships. They have commandeered ships and hold people hostage. And Joe Biden allowed this to happen. Now, that may be seen by some as an unbelievable rudeness. How dare you blame this on Joe Biden? Oh, well, if if you feel uh, that that is somehow rude, allow me to say it this way. This is because of Joe Biden. The seas are not up for debate, which is why we here have been discussing for years that we do not have a U.S. Navy that is up to snuff. You need 340 ships. I think that is the accurate number, and we are not there. And when you th- see things that happen to ships in, in dock and in, in, in being repaired, like the Richard bon, uh, uh, the Bonham Richard, this fire that got set intentionally a few years back, destroying this ship and really hurting us a- at sea. The need to build ships, the need to repair ships, the need to be prepared has never been greater. You can fight with an air force that is all drone. You can even engage with an army to a level that that has uh, technology uh, at play. You must put men on ships and ships at sea in order for the goods to get from point A to point B. They cannot get there on the internet. The internet is good for a lot of things. But if you're looking for toilet paper... It doesn't get delivered from the internet. You actually need the roll. I didn't mean to be crude, but sometimes you gotta sometimes you gotta deliver it uh, directly. The navigable seas are not up for debate. Enter Joe Biden. You have attacks on these ships, and you do nothing, less than nothing. You believe that you can negotiate it out. You believe that you can negotiate it through. Who are you negotiating with? The Houthi rebels? The Iran-backed Houthi rebels? When you think that you can negotiate these people, with whom do you think you are negotiating? What settlement, what understanding was it possible to think you were going to get? But what else would you expect from the people who entered back into the Iranian nuclear deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? How dare Donald Trump get us out of this? He was going to bring us to the brink of war. He doesn't understand peace. I'm not even a Trump guy, and I know that's just crap. These leftists who come from the Obama tree believe somehow against every bit of evidence that Iran can be reasoned with, Iran are the people that we should be connected with and not Saudi Arabia. I would say it a bit differently. Saudi Arabia is clearly the nation we should be connected with, but we should have punched Saudi Arabia in the face for September 11th. People should have suffered. Then they could have been our friend. We could have the same relationship we have with them today, but we could have said uh, to uh, the prince, um, you allowed training to happen, you allowed uh, conversations to take place, pick eight members of the royal family, they're gone. You pick them. You pick them, they're gone. That's the price you pay. Now, some people would like to have bombed Saudi Arabia out of existence. I get that understanding. And I personally will never forgive George W. Bush for not being tougher. 
I will never, ever forgive it. Because if you had been tougher, which would have been the right thing to do, we'd still be at this moment. And you would still want to be partnered with Saudi Arabia over Iran if those are your choices. The, the uh, Obama administration and the Obama acolytes never, ever wanted this plan, never wanted this philosophy, never wanted any part of it. They believed that Iran was the linchpin, the key. And somehow, should I argue, is there an argument to be made that they kind of liked Iran? I don't understand it. But they pitched the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. They lied. They created the echo chamber. Ben Rhodes and others did this. And when Joe Biden got into office after Donald Trump got us out of the JCPOA, which was a terrible plan, and he, Trump was right, it was Biden jumping back in. So now you got to attempt to have some kind of agreement with the Houthi rebels, with, with Iran, talk to them to show, see, we were right from the beginning. Look how we brought them to the table. Posturing is not policy. For those of you playing the home game, let me say it again. Posturing is not policy. Never has been. Policy is policy. And the policy is when a group of no good whatever you want to call them thinks they could take over the Red Sea, you bomb them out of existence. That's a policy. Write that down. Tony's policies. Whenever I run for office, remind me of my policies. I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. We're totally going to do that. The administration then engaged with the United Kingdom these bombing raids in Yemen on the Houthis and certain uh, select targets. Now, I'm not a fan of select targets. I, I am not a fan of this idea of pinpoint warfare. It makes no sense to me. In the same way that counterinsurgency strategy makes no sense to me. Counterinsurgency strategy is this idea that somehow we were going to go into Iraq or go into Afghanistan and win hearts and minds. You, you, you can't win hearts and minds. You can't win hearts and minds uh, in non-Western civilizations. I mean, you've proven it. That, that, there's nothing bigoted or hateful about what I said. I'm saying it can't be done. And there were plenty of, uh, of Afghans who were supportive of the United States and helpful. Uh, those are the people that Joe Biden left to die when he engaged that withdrawal. He left those people to die. But there are cultural differences at play uh, with nations in the Middle East and, the, and, and Western civilization that simply are incompatible. They are incongruent. You can't win hearts and minds. You have to go about it differently. It's like the very concept of humility. When Barack Obama was president, he did this this tour, right? The the, the world tour conversation, and and uh, with within that, he was apologizing for U.S. might. In the U.S., a conversation like that might be seen as a, a, a dose of humility, and and that is seen as a virtue, uh, and it could be seen as a virtue in Western civilization. In other cultures, it's seen as weakness, and that should then be pounced upon. If you don't understand with whom you're speaking, how in the world could you possibly speak to them properly? How could you engage properly? How could you ever have a sound policy? The pinpoint idea is, well, we're going to hit this target, but we're going to make sure no civilians around. We're going to make sure no this is around. Make sure no that is around. I think to the extent possible, you try your very best to limit the number of casualties. That makes perfect sense to me. It also makes perfect sense to me that sometimes you have to hit the target wherever the target is. They put 
their their uh, stores, their their weapon stores in Gaza, for example, underneath hospitals and underneath schools. You can't you can't hit those targets. No, no, no. It's a school there. Why would anybody defend these terrorists who use children as shields? Right? Israel uses missiles to protect their children. Hamas uses children to protect their missiles. That's the difference between the two cultures. One is better than another. But the idea that the strike doesn't take place because somebody with a hashtag has decided that that's too violent, sometimes the strike has to take place. I don't want it to happen, but it has to happen. So the idea of this pinpoint warfare, you have to hit the target, but only this and only that, and otherwise you can't do this. No, no, no. Sometimes the target must be hit. So I don't want to hear that when we're dealing with the Houthi rebels that we have to pinpoint the thing. I think we have to cause a lot of damage. And you know who else thinks this? The Houthi rebels, because they have not stopped going after ships. This was CENTCOM. That's Central Command. Talking about a third ship. On January 18th, and I'm reading from CENTCOM on uh, X, at approximately 9 p.m., Iranian-backed Houthi terrorists launched two anti-ship ballistic missiles at uh, the Chem Ranger, a Marshall Island-flagged, U.S.-owned, Greek-operated tanker ship. The crew observed the missile impact of the water near the ship. There were no reported injuries or damage to the ship. The ship has continued underway. The next one will be a direct hit. The strikes against the Houthi rebels have not worked. So now, what's the plan? The plan uh, from the administration's administration, when asked by a reporter, are the airstrikes in Yemen working? Uh, the president said, well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? And he said, President Biden said no. Are they going to continue? Yes. Continue how? In the same way? The Houthi rebels can handle this. The Houthi rebels can, 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 can overcome this. I don't think we're at the point yet where we have to go to Congress and declare war. And there are plenty of progressives who won't do it because they're fine with the Houthi rebels because the Houthi rebels are actually helpful to the Hamas cause in the ending of Israel. And this is exactly why the foreshadowing now coming to the fore, why it is Joe Biden didn't act earlier. Because acting earlier against the Houthi rebels would have been seen as support for Israel. And Joe Biden couldn't do that. Don't tell me about his words. Oh, he's spoken so strongly in favor of Israel. Stop it. Words are cheap. Words don't mean anything. Take a look at the divorce rate. Proving my point. Action matters. And Joe Biden didn't want to be seen as taking an action that might be seen as supportive of Israel. Not because I said so, but because the, as you play it out on the ground, the reality shows you. The Houthi rebels have to be dealt with. But the reality is Iran has to be dealt with. And I don't think the country's ready for that. But they better get ready for that. Because Iran, on two fronts, are starting a war. And wait till you see what they're going to try and do with a porous southern border. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today.
has been passed. There will be no shutdown. The government spending bill approved by the Senate and approved by the House, and it has House Republicans just absolutely angry as can be. Madam Speaker, the American people are tired of getting a complete lack of representation from their representatives. Nobody in this country looks at Congress and says, wow, heck of a job, guys and gals. Well done. Who would do that? Would we do that? By the way, it does not matter who's sitting in the speaker's seat or who's got the majority. We keep doing the same stupid stuff. Now, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle have no problem with wide open borders endangering the people that I represent. None. And in my constituents are the ones left holding the bag. And the people of Texas are the ones left spending $12.5 billion. And my people are the ones who have six kids die from fentanyl poisoning in the school district that I represent. I don't doubt any of it. He is absolutely correct in the idea that we have a porous, despicable border and we're letting kids die. But when you're angry that there wasn't anything to border funding, you're you're not alone. It's that you did not create a strategy that gets the win. You have two choices, Congressman Roy. Total intransigence. Shut the mother down. Or incrementalism. Which involves having a larger majority and getting small wins over time. Trying to grab what you can, taking what you can get, then after it passes, coming back and doing it again. It's like you've learned nothing from the left. And I don't like being angry at Congressman Roy. It's just I'm tired of these talking points. His constituents are not a talking point. His idea that we just don't get this done is a talking point. You don't have enough Republicans to engage the intransigence conversation. Instead, you got the same exact thing you got if Kevin McCarthy had been Speaker of the House. But now you've got, was it three less members of Congress, three less Republicans? You got rid of Santos. Kevin McCarthy, he just flat up quit. You Republicans figure it out. You didn't want me? Blank you and your meemaw is what Kevin McCarthy said. And he resigned. You could have kept McCarthy. You could have kept more political capital by not having this mess that Matt Gates put the Republican Party in. And I prove that because nothing has changed. So therefore, it didn't do anything. And for those of you who yelled at me because I said we didn't have a plan going in, there was no plan. This wasn't a plan. This was a mistake. The proof is Chip Roy talking about what's happened where no more money is going to the border. The proof is in the reality. Pick your poison. Which which way do you want to go? Do you want to go intransigence, which I have no problem with? Shut the mother down. Or, 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 do you want to go with incrementalism and then win elections, build yourself a large majority, then have the ability to do it the way you want to do it? I don't care how, but pick one. Right now, there's no plan, and changing speakers didn't help. So I don't want to hear about no confidence votes or motions to vacate. That's crazy. It is. 
The work that William Jacobson does at Legal Insurrection, LegalInsurrection.com, I've been following for years. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Find everything I do over at TonyKatz.com. And I I follow it because there's a level of intellectualism uh, that's happening that's worthwhile. There's also stories covered there that don't get covered anywhere else. They simply do not. But it is William Jacobson's push uh, in in exposing what DEI is doing in a whole host of places that really needs to be addressed. So when I got my emails, I get emails uh, from them from EPP, a project he has called the Equal Protection Project uh, about DEI and about New York, the state of New York and the STEP Act. I knew that this was a subject that wasn't getting enough play and needs to get more play. William Jacobson joins me right now. You know him from LegalInsurrection.com, Cornell Law Professor. His work also includes the EqualProtect.org, the Equal Protect Project. Uh, this, I, sh- I should be clear, sir, that this has gotten some play. Uh, uh, a series of websites have discussed this uh, as this lawsuit has just broken. You're suing the state of New York, I believe with the Pacific Legal Foundation, Talk to me about the basis of this lawsuit. Yes, we're challenging what's called the STEP Act in New York, Science Technology Entry Program. It's actually a very good program. It serves each year about 11,000 7th to 12th graders to introduce them to science and technology. They take uh, classes or not really uh, classes, but courses, uh, programs at up to 56 colleges and universities in New York State. So the state pays the colleges to do programming for 7th to 12th graders to introduce them to science and technology. So far, so good. The problem with the program, which has actually been around for almost 40 years, is that it discriminates in its eligibility requirements on the basis of race. Right in the regulations for the, the statute passed by the Department of Education, if you are black, Hispanic, or Native American, you are automatically eligible to apply. Remember, we're talking about high school and middle school students here, automatically eligible. If you are not one of those categories, meaning you're Asian or you're white, or maybe there's some other category, you have to show economic hardship, which is a very uh, high hurdle to get over. You basically have to show that your family lives at the poverty level. Uh, So if you're from a middle class Asian family or an upper uh, middle class white family, you actually cannot even apply for this program. And that's discriminatory. We believe it's illegal. And on behalf of an Asian parent, Asian American parent and three Asian American civic groups in New York State, we have filed a federal lawsuit in the Northern District of New York challenging not the whole program, but challenging the discriminatory provisions of the program. Right. So so it, it's it's fascinating how this often happens. Right. The program itself, you look at and you're like, that has a value. You, you if we're, we're talking about encouraging math, that's great, especially in a society as we've seen. And, and you've discussed many times, sir, uh, that you'll see groups like in California and other school districts do away with advanced math, do away with uh, gifted and talented programs because it makes the other students feel bad, which is, of course, its own level of discrimination. But it's it's you're talking about here how DEI, 
works as a discriminatory factor. Talk to me about not only in this program, but in other programs that your group, EqualProtect.org, has looked at how DEI engages and actually promotes discrimination. Well, remember, this program existed long before uh, what we commonly now call diversity, equity, and inclusion, but the concepts were the same. The concept was that it's okay to discriminate against certain races to help other races to achieve some sort of balance. Uh, And that concept has been around for a long time. It's now expressed as diversity, equity, and inclusion, but this New York State program has been on the books for almost 40 years. Uh, And and so we have challenged similar programs. It is a very common construct that you have different eligibility requirements where certain races, typically African-American, Black, uh, Hispanic, um, are automatically eligible for something Whereas people who are not that, who are not so-called BIPOC, uh, have hurdles to jump over. And you can't have different standards for different students based on race. That's not lawful. Uh, But that's very common. And and at EqualProtect.org, we have challenged, I think, 20 of these programs. Before we filed this lawsuit, we actually challenged the programs at seven medical schools in New York State, who were implementing this STEP Act. The argument being, it you can't take state money and say, oh, well, we're just gonna administer it in a discriminatory manner because that's what the state requires. Well, no, you don't have to take the money. You don't have to have these programs, but you don't have the choice of taking the money and then discriminating. So we started by focusing on the colleges, got a lot of publicity, or I should say the medical schools, got a lot of publicity for that, uh, and that has, evolved into this federal lawsuit. And that's in typical of what we do. We, we want to take down the systemic racism that has been injected to, into our society through DEI. Uh, and that's what our goal is. And if we are successful here, and, and I think we should be, we will have impacted tens of thousands of students in New York State and 56 colleges and universities who will no longer be able to discriminate. What's fascinating, I think, for a lot of people, talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com and EqualProtect.org, EqualProtect.org, be sure to check it out and be a supporter, is that very often we see this bigotry. And I, and I of course, agree that DEI is bigotry in, in, in its foundational uh, methodology. But people often view it as a black-white construct. But yet so many of these occasions involve Asian parents and Asian students. You talk about how Harvard doesn't allow admissions and basically states, we have enough of your kind. We want another kind. And and so that this was Asian parents sue New York State over discriminatory student programs with help, of course, from your uh, Equal Protection uh, Project, EqualProtect.org. Does this ever connect with people in a, oh, wait a second, This isn't what we're told it is. This is something far more detrimental and, and my word, devious. Well, you know, one of the things that really jumps out at me in looking at these programs, and not just this program, programs at many colleges and universities, is these are entities that have enormous bureaucracies devoted supposedly to preventing discrimination on the basis of race. Yet they have programs that openly do that 
and nobody says a word. How is it that nobody at the New York State Department of Education said, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we need to change the program. How is it that nobody at any of these 56 colleges and universities says, hey, you know, we got this money, but it's going to require us to discriminate on the basis of race. And we have all these rules and these policies that say we shouldn't be doing it. But nobody apparently speaks up. This sort of thing has become normalized in our society. It's become worse with the advent of DEI and critical race theory. But it's been around for a while that certain types of discrimination are have become normalized. And it's not the discrimination we hear about. It's not white supremacy. These are programs that discriminate against people on the basis of race who frequently are Asian and frequently are white. And I think as a society, we have to say enough already. And I think New York State Department of Education needs to do its own internal investigation as to how nobody ever spoke up about this. Or maybe they did. And that would in some ways be worse if someone spoke up internally and it was chosen to be ignored. Uh, I'm going to turn a a half a a step here and people should go to EqualProtect.org and learn more about this and support what it is that you're doing. And and more of this bigotry that we're seeing in terms of the anti-Semitism on college campuses. This was you from LegalInsurrection.com. Window dressing. Day after congressional letter threatening funding, Cornell condemns student social media post that, quote, Zionists must die. And and for the sake of, of definitions, a Zionist is somebody who believes that Israel has the right to exist and right to defend itself. And I state as freely as the day is long, uh, I'm a Zionist. Uh, so this from your university, how did this uh, come about and how is it being taken on the campus? Everybody remembers that congressional hearing with the presidents of Harvard, who's now gone, UPenn, who's now gone, MIT, who seems to be hanging in there, uh, where they were just unable in any coherent manner to condemn or describe uh, the actions of students on their campuses, which I think are fairly characterized as anti-Semitic. And they really flummoxed it. Cornell's president was not at that hearing. Maybe she'll be at a future one. I have no idea. But uh, Cornell came under a lot of heat because of things that happened at our campus. A uh, well-known professor giving a speech to a large gathering just off campus, which included a lot of students, where he said he felt exhilarated on October 7th when he heard of the Hamas attack. Um, uh, You know, a a student who threatened to shoot up the kosher dining hall and is now in federal custody. I mean, he's been criminally charged Um, and protests, students chanting for an intifada, which was the bloody suicide bombing campaign against Israel. So we have all this stuff going on. And Cornell came under a very big spotlight, even though the president wasn't at that that hearing. Well, what happened is uh, a congressional committee, I think it was Ways and Means, uh, sent subpoenas and sent a letter to uh, four universities, the three who were at the hearing, plus Cornell. So Cornell, according to Congress, has been elevated into this infamous elite group uh, with uh, MIT, UPenn, and Harvard as something that's warranting congressional scrutiny. And the letter basically said, we're investigating you. Here's the records that we want. By the way, uh, you are 
receiving federal funding, you're required to comply with federal anti-discrimination laws, and you are a 501c3, a tax-exempt entity. And it's not clear to us that you're complying with the requirements that, um, you know, to get that funding and to maintain that status, which of course is like, you know, a death threat, practically a corporate death threat. If you lose your right. tax exempt status as a university, you're gone. Um, and, and, and what the letter said is that, you know, uh, we are concerned that you have not forcefully condemned, you know, anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, on your campuses. That letter comes out the next day I and the rest of the campus get a mass email blast from the president of Cornell University condemning what some student, unidentified student, but I believe it is a student, and I think I know who the person is because it's been circulating, um, but condemning the statement of this person. And to me, that just sounds like window dressing. You get a letter from Congress putting an issue your 501c3, your nonprofit status, putting an issue, your federal funding, telling you you've got to start condemning uh, what may be First Amendment protected speech, but which creates a hostile atmosphere on campus. And all of a sudden, this administration, which has been uh, received enormous criticism for being lackadaisical in how it's responding, all of a sudden, within 24 hours, there's a mass email blast to the whole campus condemning this statement. Now, the statement as far as I can tell, was not made on campus. The statement was made on some students' personal, uh, I think it was Instagram account. And, you know, so it seems like window dressing that Cornell, the, the, is, their feet are being put to the fire by Congress. And now all of a sudden they're going to be hyper vigilant so much that they almost become Internet hall monitors of what students are doing. And I think that raises, you know, real questions and real, real concerns. I obviously don't approve of that statement by the student, but the Cornell reaction struck me as window dressing. Well, the other part of the reaction, while we've got about 60 seconds left, William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor at LegalInsurrection.com, is is the idea that it took Congress to act to get Cornell uh, to act. But has anything on the campus changed? Have students started standing up to the bigotry of the anti-Semites? Have the anti-Semites grown in in popularity or in numbers or in support? Uh, Has the campus gone in one direction or another? Well, you know, I was off campus this fall. I was on sabbatical, but I obviously hear from people uh, what's going on. And I think it's viewed as by the students, by the Jewish students, as a fairly toxic environment. Can't say whether it's gotten better or worse. We've been on break for the last few weeks, the entire campus. This thing with the congressional letter came out while we were on break and the reaction. So I don't know that there's been much reaction, but I think it's fair to say that the Cornell administration seems flummoxed in how they're going to address this problem and they obviously don't want to be the next Harvard, UPenn, or MIT, uh, put in a congressional seat before a, a he- in a hearing. But I think that's probably where they're heading. Not because I have inside info. I don't. But Cornell is, has a problem, and I'm not sure they're able to deal with it right now. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, and, of course, EqualProtect.org, EqualProtect.org. Sir, always a pleasure uh, to have you here. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So in the the pre-market... 
in the pre-market, the, the, the Dow was up massive, and it's still that way. Right now, the Dow is up 217, and the NASDAQ is up 139. Uh, pretty interesting uh, that, that we're seeing this kind of movement because there's definitely been some, some, some rough spots this week. Uh, and one of the other things we're seeing is interest rates started to creep back up because the uh, 10-year treasury had started to come back up. And if the 10-year treasury, which is the benchmark by which you determine uh, 30-year fixed mortgage rates, was going up, you'll see a higher You'll see higher mortgage rates right now at 4.167. Well, we were trending under 4%, which would have you uh, those mortgage rates in, in the six and a half sevens. We're going to see them go up. But while they were lower, we finally started seeing people pushing to get not only uh, a mortgage to purchase a house, but there was an uptick in refis. And you're like, people refi at six and a half percent? If you bought at seven and three quarter, you bet your butt you did. And they paid the fees and everything else to do it because they saw it over the long run as something of value. Now, if the rates start ticking back up, well, all bets are off. All bets are off. And then there's another problem in real estate, which has to do with the fact that still, and, and you know this where you are. If, if you have information, Tony at TonyCats.com, email it to me or leave it in the comments as we do uh, the, the live streaming or on X at Tony Katz. Uh, t- uh, go to TonyCats.com. The inventory is not there. Inventory is absolutely not there, and that's going to lead to continued high prices. So this is a seems to be a good ending for the week on the markets. We'll see. I'm Tony Katz.